0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: At the end of the day, it's what you put on the table, and you have to understand that. And you have to have the confidence to put it on the table. I mean, I've lost projects because I've put my number on the table and it's been too high. And I don't regret it because those are the kinds of moments you flex, you learn. It's too high for someone. Fine, you walk away, but you get used to it because sometimes, often, people reach your
2: price. They get it. Your life is going to change, jobs and kids and houses. The question is, are you financially ready to enjoy the ride? If not, visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because you've got so much to look forward to. You wanna get excited, but you also need to be prepared. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. I'm so happy that you're able to join us here today on Her Money. Even if this is the very first episode of Her Money that you've ever listened to, and if it is, welcome, we're glad to have you, you can probably guess from our name that we love exploring the impact of money on women's lives. That's what we do. We talk about all the ways we earn it, how we can earn more of it, the joy and sometimes regret that we feel when we spend it, how to invest it, all the ways to grow it, and how to make it last for our futures. and. Believe me, I could go on because as we like to say at Her Money, life is the topic. Money is the tool because money is the tool that enables us to reach so many of our goals in life, which is why we need to talk about it so much more than we do. That is why I'm so excited today that we're talking money with the editor of the new book called Women Talk Money. Breaking the Taboo. It's an essay collection and it explores the profound impact of money on the lives of women. The book contains previously unpublished essays by trailblazing writers and activists like Alice Walker and Cameron Russell and Tressie McMillan Cottam, and Sonia Renee Taylor, and Rachel Cargill, and so many more. And these essays are lifting the veil on how women talk money. The book also dives into the power that money has to impact health and define relationships and shape female identity. And I'm so excited to be joined by Rebecca Walker. She is the amazing editor of this book. She's also a prominent feminist and an amazing writer. She's the author of several best-selling books and the co-founder of the Third Wave Fund, which is an organization that gives grants to women and transgender youth working for social justice. She also works as a DEI consultant for Fortune 500 companies, and she was named by Time Magazine as one of the most influential leaders of her generation. Rebecca, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Jean. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be talking to all of you out there who have decided to spend a little time with us today. I know you're busy trying to make money, save money, spend money, figure out money. And so it's precious because time is money and deciding to come be with us for this time, I take very seriously I'm grateful that you are spending your time with us.
2: As do I, that is very nicely put. When we're thinking about a person like you who has a full plate, you also, I know, have a choice of projects. So why this book? Why was it This book that you determined was worth your time?
1: Mm, Great question. Well, I decided to do this book. Well, I I started to think about it before I actually made the decision in 2008 during the Great Recession. And I, like all of my friends, was struggling with money, with figuring out how I was going to make money, you know, more money than I had, you know, how I was going to really manage the very rocky economy that we were all navigating at the time. And what I found during that period that was so wonderful was, you know, there was a lot of stress, but what was so wonderful about it was that I was starting to have very honest conversations about money with all of my friends. And because we were all struggling, because we were all trying to figure it out, it became sort of normal to just start a conversation with, okay, well, how's it going with, you know, your healthcare premium, (laughs) you know, like, how is it going with your rent? How is it going with your mortgage? You know, what are you thinking about in terms of money? And we started to be much more honest in this space that had been previously very secreted and cloaked. And we just shied away from talking about how much money we made. We shied away from talking about how much money we spent. We shied away from talking about how we were raised to think about money. And at this particular moment, it was like the gate, you know, the floodgates opened and, and these these very real conversations started to happen and our friendships deepened as a result. And I felt like, wow, you know, I've been talking about so many different things for all of these years, doing all these books about race, about gender, about, you know, new family configurations, about toxic masculinity, about you know, so many things. And yet this feels like it's, as the book, you know, the subtitle is Breaking the Taboo, this feels brand new and fresh and courageous and important. And if I can support more of these conversations, I feel that I can support the further financial freedom of women. And, you know, that includes supporting women in looking at the places in their psyches and their bodies where they're holding emotions and be it shame, be it guilt, be it confusion around money and working through those stories and those places in order to open the channel and open a new space to write a new story about money. So I think it's a natural evolution. You know, I wanted to do this because I think for me, if my work isn't affecting people's lives, if it's not trying to change the culture, why do it? And it seemed to me that this conversation could actually be very impactful and therefore really connect to my sense of purpose, you know, of helping people and specifically building community around important topics and facilitating scary conversations.
2: No, I, I do know. And what I think what's so striking about what you just said is that these conversations came out of trying times, right? We weren't having these conversations in good times. We weren't having these conversations when everybody felt, I guess, more flush or even where there was this sense in the air that somebody's doing better than me, that people were doing well. And I'm wondering why you think that is, and if you think we needed or still need hardship in order to break down our defenses when it comes to having these talks? I think that's such
1: a great question. What I'm hoping is that we won't need hardship moving forward to have these talks. What I think we need is intention and an understanding of how important these conversations are, not just for ourselves personally, but for ourselves within families and communities on the planet. But I do think that for me and many in my generation who really felt the blow of that moment, the hardship was a kind of equalizer that helped to dissipate some of the shame because, you know, or, or some of the discomfort because we were all suddenly facing the same thing, you know, people in my community are from so many different socioeconomic strata, And yet, here we all were for the first time, in some ways at the same place in terms of financial anxiety and trying to figure it all out. So I don't think we need hardship, we need intention, commitment, and understanding of the importance, and a real longing to have healing In this area, I think as we talk about wellness so much in our culture right now, and even though that's considered, you know, wellness is contextualized within a very privileged community, unfortunately, when we democratize and open up the definition of wellness, that includes, from my mind, psychological, emotional healing at a very deep level. And often that has to happen around our ideas that we've inherited, that we've cultivated, that we're embodying, that we're carrying, that we're formulating around
2: money, you know? That's something that, you know, the community of human resources professionals and employers have really keyed into, right? When they look at wellness, they look at four dimensions. They look at mental health. They look at physical health. They look at, I'm going to forget the fourth, but the third is financial health. It's in there. Yes. With everything else. I'm wondering, you know, everybody brings their own money history to these conversations. What's yours? What's your personal relationship with money?
1: Yeah, what's my money story? Well, it's evolved, obviously. I think that as I write in the introduction, I grew up, I'm the daughter of two first-generation college graduates. My father went on to graduate school and became an attorney. His mother was a bookkeeper in New York, whose parents were first-generation Americans coming from Ukraine, actually. And I remember my grandmother working six different bookkeeping jobs when I was young, and she managed to put all three of her sons through college and graduate school, which was a miracle. Well, it wasn't a miracle, it was the result of her working hard and really prioritizing what was important and valuable to her, which was making sure her sons were going to do better than she was able to. And on my mother's side, she's the daughter of sharecroppers in the deep south, in the Jim Crow south, and her experience of being able to leave, you know, this rural community of African Americans at a time when people were really struggling and go to college, and become a best-selling author, and integrate the models of self-reliance and careful planning, which included growing your own food, for instance, working within the community to make sure everybody had enough, and prioritizing education, again, just like on my father's side. So I come from this marriage of people who were very intimate with the struggles of the working class and who came out of communities in which elevating the next generation to the middle class was very, very important, and I definitely inherited a lot of of both of of their energies and their modalities. you know I'm very much committed to doing work that benefits the community I'm very interested in making sure that I make money and utilize money in such a way that my son will have opportunities and be educated and be able to have mobility. Both of my parents ended up making much more money than their parents. And as a result, I think I have grown up straddling these two worlds, understanding that you can always lose money. You know, you can always go back in a way and really face financial hardship. And you can always move forward if you are strategic and if you have an important, you know, a value system in place and a plan. And so I've held all of that, but I've also been a child of privilege, you know, so that once my mother started to make a lot more money, I went through a period of being less careful with my money and making some decisions that I think many, many people make, especially women, that were very emotionally based as opposed to integrating my emotions with a kind of pragmatism. So one of my stories that I was holding shame about that I write about in the introduction is I had finally sold my first book and gotten together some money and I bought an apartment and it was very important to building my own network and careful planning for the future. And I fell in love with someone and ended up as a result of that relationship, selling the apartment way too early and really letting go of This important piece of my financial foundation. And the relationship didn't work out, and I lost a lot of money. (laughs) And I felt a lot of shame about that decision that I then carried with me for a long time until I unpacked it and forgave myself for making that decision and came to contextualize it within another trajectory of growth for myself. So, you know, that's a little piece of my story. I would say that now. I've also, I'm also borrowing from both of my parents' belief systems. My mother is very conservative. She doesn't believe in investing in a certain way in the stock market, all that. She's much more about property and wanting to make sure, I think coming from her background where she lived in very poor housing that she didn't own as a young person, she is very much focused on owning your own home and making sure that That is secure in various locations. And, you know, if if a climate crisis happens here, she wants to be able to go somewhere else. So she feels secure there. And I followed that. My father is very much kind of more traditional New Yorker in the market. And I've really educated myself about that world and made sure that my son is educated, you know, and informed about both of those. So I think my money story now is all of that. And I would say, In another way, I also have come to understand that it's important to me to spend money on things that feed my spirit, that feed my soul, that allow me to regenerate and provide and be present for the others in my life that I love. So that means spending money on beauty. That means spending money on on valuable experiences that will help me grow. That means making sure that I'm spending money on quality food when I can, that I'm in this new, interesting house that we're renovating, (laughs) Um, you know, making sure that the water is clean, that we're putting money into a solar system so that we can, you know, do better for the environment, that we've gotten this place in a neighborhood that's been neglected, and I want to contribute to the neighborhood, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to put in a community garden, you know, so that... I want to make sure that my money is going toward the flowering and blossoming of myself and everyone around me. And at the same time, I think I've always had this, but even more so now, I have a real sense of my own worth and the value of the work that I do. And so I'm very clear about asking for what I need in terms of being paid. <laughs> yeah, you know?
2: no, absolutely. And I am going to pause you there because I want to come back to that whole issue of asking for what we need. It is a big one. We're just going to take a moment to remind everybody that life comes at you really fast and there could be wedding bells on the horizon, a promotion around the corner, a grandchild on the way. Are you financially prepared for all of that, for everything that life has in store? Well, if you have a well-crafted financial plan, it's a whole lot easier to be ready. So visit planEFE.com slash hermoney. You'll be able to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor and you'll work with an expert to look at your current situation, develop a long-term strategy to help you embrace all of these amazing big moments in life. I hope that you'll take a moment to schedule your free appointment today. We are back with Rebecca Walker. She is editor of the book, Women Talk Money. For any of our listeners who don't know, Rebecca's mother is Alice Walker, who wrote The Color Purple along with many other wonderful things. And so just to put that in context for people so that it makes maybe a little bit more sense. But what you said about her and and property ownership is so female. Yes. My last book was called Women With Money. And I talked to hundreds of women before writing it just to find out what they wanted from their money. And this desire for safety and security came out loud and clear. And it was not just a house, right? It's a house right. with a paid off mortgage, right? And it's not just a car, but it's a car with all the airbags and the <laughs> backup cameras and the blind spot indicators, right? It is huge. And when I got divorced, all I wanted to do was buy a house, right? I just, yes. that was like tip top of my list. So I totally relate to this. As you were choosing the writers and the essays for this book, What were the pieces that struck you? What were the pieces that maybe stayed with you the most in the ways that some of these women were forced to reimagine their own relationships with money?
1: Mm. You know, all of them have stayed with
2: me. But um, let's see. So I would say you
1: mentioned Cameron Russell in your intro. So Cameron is a supermodel. I've driven down Sunset Boulevard and seen her, you know, on a huge Prada billboard. And I've seen her, you know, in J. Crew, And I've seen her just all over the world. And she's a wonderful soul. And her piece is really about how she has had to come to terms with what she calls winning the genetic lottery within a context of a world that privileges what she looks like and how she manages to make the amount of money she makes participating in this glamorization of beauty and objectification of women by using her platform and her money to challenge the fashion system as a whole, and to make sure that women are well paid, that the environments in which they work are not toxic, to raise awareness about the excesses of fashion to challenge sexual harassment and objectification within that world and to really make sure that she is challenging the culture as much as she is benefiting from it. And I think each of the writers in their own way, in their own worlds, are doing the same thing. They are figuring out a way to be more aware of their financial position And transform that into some kind of social justice or some kind of revisioning of money. So I'm thinking now of Nina Revoir's piece, which is about realizing that the neighborhood in which she lived in L.A., Glassell Park, was very very toxic and that was a result of environmental you know racism and classism so she was living in a community that was highly polluted and she wasn't able to breathe you know she stopped being able to breathe and had to move out of her community so that she could actually breathe her journey through this process of trying to breathe again was one in which she had to spend a lot of money and it really helped her become conscious of environmental discrimination, and to raise her own voice and become a real activist in that space. Leah Hunt Hendricks, who is the daughter of one of the most wealthy women in America, Helen Hunt, growing up with such privilege, she decided to use her access to that money and her privilege to fund social justice movements like Black Lives Matter, like Occupy Wall Street, but only after a lot of ambivalence about her position, you know, there's so many pieces.
2: Do you think, just sort of in listening to the threads in these stories, I mean, it seems like these women, just like you described in your own journey, took a little time to figure out what it was that they truly valued mm-hmm. and how to then align their spending, their giving, their investing, their work with these values. Is that a thread that you think winds its way through the book?
1: That is absolutely a thread. I mean, all of these pieces, you know, when you do collections, like, you know, this is my fifth collection, a lot of the work of editing pieces like this is helping writers to find the most potent story in their lives and begin to Unravel, you know, to begin to look at what those stories have meant. So, yes, that is what I think each writer has done. They've looked at a place where money has really mattered and figured out where they want to go with that knowledge. So, another piece I love by Latham Thomas, who is a real leader in the doula space, is about something that many Black women experience, which is a sense that we get from the outside world, from white supremacy, basically, that we shouldn't have money, that if we have money, there's something criminal about it, that we've done something wrong, that we don't deserve it. And her story that she told me when we were starting to work on her piece was about seeing her mother, who was a real estate agent, go into the bank to cash her commission check and have the teller doubt that she had gotten the check honestly And the teller called the police on her mother, and she had to watch her mother being wrestled to the ground by the police for having a check that she earned because they thought she had stolen the money. And she, Latham, spent her life feeling uncomfortable in banks, uncomfortable having a lot of money, uncomfortable because she felt that she could be penalized for it. And so she ultimately had to get to a place of reclaiming her power and not allowing that idea to keep her from making money, (laughs) and also to think about money as something that benefits her community, thinking about money not just as paper money, but as social currency, as sharing of ideas, of sharing of places, of sharing, you know, resources, basically, in a much broader way. And I think that's a really good example of what all of the writers do. They start somewhere painful and go somewhere powerful.
2: The pandemic was a really painful time, at least the beginning of the pandemic. It hit women hard. It hit women of color particularly hard. You spoke earlier about being able to step up and ask for the money that you deserve. Clearly, that was, you know, something that Latham and other women struggled with. What did you take away from your own experience and from the book in general that you think is helpful to other women when it comes to claiming this sort of power? I mean, I do this for a living, and I still have trouble asking for money for me when I'm in the midst of a negotiation. You know, I Mm -hmm. do it. I practice it. Sometimes I write it out so I remember what to say. But it's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. It's a great question, and I talk to a lot of my
1: friends about this. People really—they often say, "You know, Greg, you are so good at this. How do you do this?" I think it's a lot like—I don't know if you know Clarence Avant, but they call him the Black Godfather, and he was supportive of so many artists. You know, Whitney Houston, and I mean just everybody, and he really shepherded a lot of important people through developing their careers and something that he always says is find out what the white man is making and then charge more (laughs) (laughs) or at least get that and I think that that's something that's really struck me you know as a woman find out what men are making and ask for that and more you know and so I think in a broader way thinking in terms of what Everyone else is being paid, starting to understand who is making what and for what kind of work. And also to think about the institutions that you're working for and with and how much money they actually have and how much you will be bringing to them and how they should really be paying you and supporting you commensurate to what you're giving them. And to believe that what you're giving them is extremely powerful and important. And also to understand that none of it is set in stone. You know, none of it has been decided. People talk about industry standards. Oh, we'll never get this. We'll never get that. No one gets this. Don't get that. That's all bullshit. You know, at the end of the day, it's what you put on the table. And you have to understand that. And you have to have the confidence to put it on the table i mean i've lost projects because i've put my number on the table and it's been too high and i don't regret it because those are the kinds of moments you flex you learn you put it on the table it's too high for someone fine you walk away but you get used to it because sometimes often people reach your price they get it and if you go too low there you are going too low and i often say you know if i put a number on the table and somebody accepts it within 24 hours. I haven't gone high enough.
2: <laughs> it's, uh, that is so true. That is that is it's, totally you know, true. And there is no worse feeling in the world than having them meet your price too quickly. Exactly. And I want all women to do that.
1: You know. And your point is well taken. It's not easy. So I think it's important for us to talk about this more and more and normalize it. I don't think this is just for women who are privileged. I think this is For all women, this is applicable, you know, even when you're struggling, even when you're afraid, even when you're not sure, even when you can't afford to lose the job, when you need the job, I think it's still important to push the envelope. And you can always say, you know, listen, this is what I believe I'm worth and this is what I think I need to be paid. I'm open to some conversation about it, but, you know, don't try Not to allow your sense of losing the job define what you put out as what you need, what you offer, you know. It's the belief. It's the belief.
2: There you go, Jean. It's the belief. No, it is. Yeah. You said it. I'm, yeah. I'm quoting yeah. you back to you, but it is. It's the belief that this is what you're worth. You've said, and this I'm quoting, until women begin to talk freely about money and all of its implications, women's contributions will continue to be unrecognized and undervalued, and women's compensation will continue to pale in comparison to their male counterparts. We have to believe
1: Absolutely. We have to believe. And, you know, I talk a lot too about, you know, quote unquote, domestic work, the labor of raising children, the labor of taking care of parents, of taking care of family that so often falls on women and which is completely not remunerated. It's not integrated into the GDP. There is no sense of it as real work. And that is different from other countries like the Scandinavian countries in which women are, families are given stipends because there's an understanding per child, because there's an understanding that women are raising the next generation that will drive the economy. That is real work. We are creating the raw material that will make this whole system functional. So if we think about the importance of women being remunerated for all of the work that we do, we understand that our wealth will increase We understand that our GDP as a nation will increase if that work is considered as work. And, you know, when people are upset about how much money people have to pay in taxes in the Scandinavian country, well, that tax money goes to supporting women and the labor of the domestic sphere, which is absolutely critical. And We shouldn't even call it the domestic sphere because we are, again, creating human beings who will go be, you know, active participants in all the spheres. So this is a terrible analogy, but it's like building a house. It's like building a computer. It's like building a company. We are building human beings and taking care of our communities. And that's the bedrock of this system. And so many feminist economists have talked about this for a very long time. And I'm saddened by its exclusion from the national discourse. And I think we need to push it in addition to family leave and daycare centers and healthcare costs. We need to really look at other models around the world and how women's wealth is actually increased by a recognition of the many kinds of labor that we do.
2: Yeah, no question. You are 100% preaching to the choir with that. We're going to wrap this up, but as we do, Rebecca, I just want to ask you for the listeners there who are thinking, yes, I want in, Mm -hmm. I want Mm -hmm. to start, I'm listening to this show, but I want to start more conversations about money. One tip to get them going.
1: Just start.
2: (laughs) Just be honest
1: about what you're making, what your parents told you about money. Just start integrating money into your conversations with one another, being more transparent about your financial need, about your debt, about your dreams, about your aspirations, put it out there, let people support you, let people hear you, let money be a part of what brings you closer to yourself and the people you love and your community and let what comes of that that comfort and ease that comes from that radiate out into all the realms of your life, because it really will, you
2: know, it really will. It really will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The book is women talk money, breaking the taboo. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Oh, it was
1: fantastic. Thank you, Jean. I've had a great time and I'm so happy we were able to do this.
2: Me too. We hope to have you back. As we head into our mailbag with Catherine, let me just... Remind everyone that her money and great conversations like that one. Oh my gosh, I so enjoyed that. Her money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union providing a wide array of financial products and services for its members. And let me just say the auto market has been wild this year. But if you're exploring the auto market, whether you are looking to buy a car, whether you're looking to refinance the car that you have, BCU has really great financing and refinancing options, as well as an exclusive auto buying service to save you time and money. And you can learn more at www.bcu.org.
0: Catherine Tuggle is with me now. Hey, Catherine. Hey there, Jean. That was such a wonderful conversation. I loved that chat with her. Yeah,
2: she was terrific. I'm such a fan. So, it was nice to be able to connect, be able to talk to her and, you know, kudos for realizing that money is one of those subjects that does feel new and strange and different and I agree. I think we are sort of at the precipice of really breaking open the doors and having those open honest conversations we should have been having all along.
0: Yeah. And as hard as the pandemic has been on women, I do think that the pandemic has made us angrier and made us more intentional about some of the things that we're asking for and the conversations Mm -hmm. that we're having. So I do think that is one silver lining of what we've been through the last two years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it comes to all of that unpaid labor and the realization that I think would have hit anyone who was at home with young children or teenagers or older parents, that this is work. This is work. And this is work that should be more valued than it is right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's dive into a question or two. Our question today comes from Therese. She writes, Hi, Gene and team. I'm 39 years old and still a novice to the world of investing in retirement savings. I'd like to know which books you'd recommend to read on investing for someone like me. Since I got a late start, I'm heavily focused on investing for retirement. What are the best sources you recommend? Thank you so much. Hi, Therese. Well, don't
2: worry, I think 39. I mean, yes, in some books, that might be considered a a late start, because we do like to see people saving in their 20s and 30s, if possible. But I don't want you to think that it is impossible by any means, because you've still got many, many years, as long as you get your savings going, and ramp up. I am, which will be no surprise to our listeners, I'm a really big fan of Jason Zweig, who writes the Intelligent Investor column for the Wall Street Journal. And I would pick up the book, The Intelligent Investor as well. I think that's a wonderful place to start. It's not brand new by any means, but all of the concepts in there are are really proven, You know, very sort of tried and true. I would also say, so if you're going to read one book, that's the book that I would read. But there are many others. I thought that Erin Lowry's book, which is called Broke Millennial, Takes on Investing. She was a guest on our show when the book came out, if you want a little taste of it. I thought that was quite good. So you may want to give that a read as well. And if you're looking to learn about investing with a group, check out our new Investing Fix program. We're now running some investing classes. I'm doing this with Karen Feinerman, who you may know from CNBC. She is a professional investor, and we are, with a big group of women, building a group portfolio, taking a deep dive into the concepts of basic investing, and learning and having some fun along the way. And you can find out more about that at hermoney.com slash fix. F-I-X-X, or investing fix again, fix com. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jean. And in today's Thrive, the red flags we should be on the lookout for when we're hunting for a job. Finding a job, yeah, it's a job in and of itself. And if you've been weeding through job postings, fine-tuning your resume, powering through applications, it can get tiring and you want to make sure that you're not missing any red flags at hermoney.com we break them down here are just a few of my favorites number one an unclear job posting you might have been drawn in by an exciting title but maybe the job posting itself doesn't have clear-cut details If you applied anyway and got through to the interview, maybe the potential supervisor doesn't quite know how to describe that future job. They can't tell you how the success will be measured or what your day-to-day will look like. If you can't get specific details about the job function and duties and how your performance will be judged, that should set off a big alarm. Just walk away. Second, lack of women in leadership positions. Starting with your first interview, plus any details you can find on Google, pay attention to how many women work at the company. If you don't see any, or you see only very few, this could be a problem. It might be a telltale sign of the environment not being supportive of women ask about the company's leadership, inquire about leadership initiatives. How many of them are women-led? And finally, if the interview is uncomfortable, well, some questions are meant to challenge you to see if you're a good fit for the job. We should all be ready for those. But if they start to dig into personal questions, This could be a red flag that they're basing the hiring decisions on personal information, and your personal life has absolutely no bearing on the level of expertise or value that you bring to a company. Should these questions come up, don't be afraid to not answer, or if you want to be bold, ask the interviewer directly, how are these questions relevant to your capability to do the job at hand. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Rebecca Walker for joining us today. I am so inspired, not only by the stories that she shared in her book, but by her own. It makes me really, really happy to see women candidly discussing this topic. And I'm glad that we were able to have a piece of it here. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk soon.